Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi everyone and welcome to Remote Viewed for another remote viewing chat. Today's recording was a community remote viewing chat with Joseph McMoneagle on Friday 1st of April 2022. Joe is commonly known as Viewer 001 or his other number is Viewer 372. He has a career spanning 38 years and Joe has provided professional support to the Secret Service, the CIA, NSA, DEA, FBI, the Defence Intelligence Agency the United States Customs, the National Security Council, and most major commands within the Department of Defence. Today's topics cover topics like unknown life in the upper atmosphere, UAPs and the Tic Tac UFOs, theories of how remote viewing works, Joe's thoughts on the Russia-Ukraine war, and lots of advice for many of us aspiring remote viewers out there. Enjoy the show. Namaste. Well, I want to say thanks, Joe, from everyone here, the uh, 66 people here so far, and I'll, I'll be adding more as they as they come in, because we usually get 10 to 30 stragglers come in for the next half okay. hour. Okay. So. I want to say on behalf of everyone, thanks for coming back and uh, chatting with us mm-hmm. and uh, having a look at all these questions that people have submitted. Um, Should we start with the uh, from the top with uh, the question one, question number one from Dimmy? Uh, sure. Said, on your last visit uh, to Daz Chat, you said there was certainly something living in our atmosphere and you said they don't communicate with us uh, no i, don't I didn't say there was something i said there probably is something right living in our atmosphere and um we just didn't notice it for quite a while because well we noticed it but the uh, government didn't notice it until they were able to capture it on their targeting devices um, but that's, it's possible that these things have been there all along and everybody just ignored them that had any authority to make some comment about it. Um, I don't think they know what they are. Right. Okay. Do you, uh, you do. are, 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 do we know if they're, if they're maybe a life form or if they're mechanical in some way? I, in my sense has always been that they're like drones, that right. they're auto mechanical that they don't have any life forms on them. That's my perception, except for one. There was one that I targeted, golly, probably 20 years ago that seemed to have a life form on it, but I still wasn't sure it wasn't a life form that was grown when it arrived. Um, you know, they have to travel quite a distance to get here yeah. unless they are folding in and out of reality, which would make them interdimensional. I suspect they may be interdimensional. Right. Yeah. Um, and when you looked at this, was was it a, a project you were tasked with by an agency or someone? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, they captured one on. Uh, I'm trying to remember here. They captured one on on photographs they were taking of a ground target, and it and it was in three frames of seventy frames. And it was right in the middle of the 70 frames and it entered from the bottom of the frame 
did a perfect 90 degree turn at 4,000 miles per hour and exited from the third frame. Um, it was about 300 feet across. It was flat as a pancake. Little node type thing in the center. And it was oblique. It was not a perfect circle. You know, it was off, off center a little bit. And um, that's about the sum of it. That's what they knew about it. And, uh, yeah, I was targeted on that. Excellent. Uh, Thanks for that one. And Dimi also asked another question um, regarding your project on, I think, Himiko, the lost empress from Japan. Himiko, yeah. Himi what about Himiko, that? Sorry, yes. She said, you said that you worked on the project for six and a half years. She asked, was there any retaskings? Uh, did you come back to the target by your intention or were you front-loaded? No, I was never front-loaded, but I was given... No, I don't know, probably uh, 25 or 30 different targetings on it. Uh, they were looking for a lot of things. Uh, we found what we believed to be. I did all the remote viewing, by the way, from my, from my uh, office on the mountain. Uh, I didn't have any advance notice on what the targeting was other than a sealed envelope with a number. And... Uh, we found what we put. Oh, and then after I did the targeting and uh, gave locational information, they would fly me and my wife to uh, Japan and we spend a week or 10 days or so traveling throughout the country, following up on what I gave us descriptions and locations. And by doing that, we were, we were able to find what we believe is the uh, summer palace, the winter palace, her, either her grandmother or her mother's temple, her first temple, um, the, I was able to describe uh, why there was a conflict between the, the families. There's an argument that's been going on in Japan for over 400 years on which family Himiko came from. Was it the Yamatai or the Yamato? families and uh i was able to explain why that conflict existed and the argument went away which uh really Im impressed a lot of people in japan evidently um i didn't know there was an argument is uh, the point uh i just seemed to solve the argument without knowing there was one we also were able to uh, locate what we believe is her royal tomb and uh, when we called the keeper of the tombs, you know, in Japan, they have a guy who's like the keeper of the tombs, the royal tombs. He protects them and, and that sort of thing. And he didn't believe us. He said, no, he, he knew where all the royal tombs were. And it could not possibly be the royal tomb, a royal tomb. And uh, we eventually convinced him to come look. And when he came to look, he, he passed out when he saw it. Um, <laughs> we had to carry him back to his hotel. And uh, he spent a few days in the hotel room and then agreed that we had, in fact, found another royal tomb. Wow. And, I, and, of course, I found that from, my again, my office in, uh, in uh, Nellie's Fort here. Uh, and we flew there and, and actually walked in uh walked into that area and 
and was able to locate it. it. I think the reason they didn't know it was a tomb is because it's so old. It has trees growing all over it. But I started pulling a lot of the detritus away, you know, the deadfall, and found a uh, one of the marker stones that had archaic Japanese on it. Yeah. We, we also located a a very, very old temple on an island called Amami Island, which is so small, it, it's almost not noticeable on a map. It's north of Okinawa, south of Japan. It's in the Okinawan chain. And uh, when we went there, we asked the locals, uh, the mayor, that he, he was kind of a guy acting like the mayor. We asked him if, if we could see the uh, temple on the uh, the mountain, and he said there are no temples on the mountain. We have a temple from the 1950s, um, which was established uh, for the war dead, but that was destroyed by a, a typhoon. And we went there, and that was not it. But while we were looking at that temple, I found some steps going up the side of the mountain that had also been buried in a lot of deadfall. And so we made a decision to climb that mountain. And uh, it was pretty, pretty tough climb, too, because no one, I don't think anyone had ever climbed the mountain <laughs> before. We got to the top of the mountain, and there was a cleared area at the top that was circled by the special kind of bush that they have uh, back in the, what they call the, uh, the prehistoric days. Uh, it's not really prehistoric. It's just very, very old. And uh, in the center of this clearing, circled by these special bushes, was what looked like an altar. But it turned out it wasn't an altar. It was where they were had been smashing the the uh, ceramic pots and cups and things from their ceremonies. And the uh, uh, the entire area was littered with ancient uh, pottery that had been broken so we reported it when we came down off the mountain and uh, they agreed that it was a temple site but it was extremely old and i understand now they did uh they did a couple digs there and uh were able to uh, certify it as a very ancient uh temple this goes back to when they were worshiping live volcanoes so yeah. it's very very old probably about the time prior to Himiko, possibly two or 300 years before. So we think this is probably actually her grandmother's temple. Uh, it was more of a natural type of uh, temple that was developed on her, in her route from Southeast Asia to, uh, to Southern Japan when they settle in, in, at the land of Wa, they call it back then. Um, anyway, we we climbed another mountain that I said the summer palace was on, and they asked me why it was on that particular mountain, and I said because it's 15 degrees cooler there all summer. And so we climbed that mountain and found that it, in fact, was exactly 15, 15 degrees cooler. And uh, while we are on that mountain, I remember that the man who was paying all the bills, he said, uh, he said to me, he said, Joe son, there's, there's no water here. And if it was an entire palace, they had to have a considerable amount of water because they needed to bathe and 
feed the animals and everything. And I said, oh, th there is water here. And he said, no, there's no indication of water on any of the topographical maps. So I told him to follow me and I went off through the jungle and uh, got to the other side of the top of the mountain and there was an overhang, a big cutaway overhang, that, like a indentation in the top of the mountain. And under it was a monstrous pond, and it was completely circled with, again, archaic statue, uh, archaic carvings, and and lots of statements in archaic Japanese. They they can't read their own archaic Japanese, by the way. It's it's completely different symbol, okay. uh, probably because of the uh, the Chinese influence on their symbol symbology back then. But uh, there were koi in this in this pond that had to be close to fifty pounds swimming around. So um, he was surprised when I I found the water so quickly. Yeah, um, that that kind of thing. Um, over the over the time period that we were doing all this work, um, well, I think we firmly established the fact that she was a real person and existed for almost 75 years in Japan and ruled Japan for that 75 years uh, without any conflict, which is uh, amazing in itself. So anyway. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing project. Is that is that written up in a, in a book or is on video anywhere? Actually, um, there was a book published and it was a, we had a uh, graduate student with us uh, he was doing a graduate uh, school project for his, uh, I don't think it was a doctorate, I think it was his master's on Japanese mythology and history. And he wrote, he wrote his, his paper turned into a book. And they, they basically sold a lot of copies, millions of copies. And, uh, but that was his thesis for his graduation. And right now I'm, I'm working on, uh, working on, uh, uh, a more and a more, uh, complete book that talks about the beginnings, uh, where her great, great grandfather, great grandmother came from on her father's side or mother's side, how they got to the land of Wa, uh, their trip, that sort of thing, why they, they packed up and moved to Japan, um, had a lot to do with it. Uh, for instance, there is a, uh, an area of desert just south of the Gobi desert that didn't exist back then, but it was coming into being where one of their villages was located and they had to leave their village because they were uh, running out of grass to feed their animals. And, uh, and they had to leave. And they decided to go to the new land, so to speak, which was the land of Wa. And uh, so they built a, a really large barge-like bo boat. And uh, the thing about the thing about Japan, when you do a book in Japan, there there's such a wide range of characters that are used in the languages and the dialects that they they range like the average person on the street might know something like 35, 38,000 characters uh, because it's a pictographic language. Yeah. A professor in college might know 190,000 characters. Uh, 
So you can't, you can't write a book and satisfy everybody. So what they do is they use these, uh, this thing called, I think it's called anime or something. It's like a cross between a comic book and a book that's written. So they understand what the symbologies or the characters mean. And so I'm having to provide drawings (laughs) with the writing now. And and it's a, a very long, arduous process because I have to be accurate in the drawings that go back to 249 AD in Japan. And all that takes remote viewing. So that sounds like a pretty huge rough. Amount, that sounds like a huge amount of remote viewing on a project like that. It is. It's a monstrous amount. I've got a lot of things from my notes back back when I did the actual remote viewing. But there's some things that you know, just don't exist anymore. Like the boat they travel on, um, how they travel with animals and not animals and, uh, what, what they, what their huts generally look like and, you know, where they lived, how they lived, how their animals would care for that, that sort of thing becomes very complex and, yeah. And deep. So anyway, if you don't mind me me asking, how how long would, would that a project of that scale, take or how long have you taken on that project by the time i'm through it's probably gonna be around 10 years wow okay yeah that's uh that's significant that's uh, a lot longer than most of us out here practicing yeah they, the, the people i work for they it's a it's a very small group of men uh, no women all men they're extremely wealthy they uh, are mostly billionaires uh it's called the nakanai group and the Nakanai in, in Japanese means something like pursuers of knowledge. Yeah. Or, and what they try to do is prove mythologies are real in Japan. If they that or prove that they're not, one or the other, they're, they're interested in the two. I, I did a, uh, one of them asked me what Himiko looked like. Yeah. We were sitting at dinner, and so I did a sketch of Himiko. And uh, <laughs> it's now blown up into this very large picture and framed in these gilded frames. And they're, they're arguing now over who loves her the most. Excellent. But she was very, I mean, she was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Um, she was from Southeast Asia. So. Sounds fantastic and a huge amount of work. Well done. Uh-huh. Yeah, I yeah. look forward to seeing that when it comes out, especially if it's a anime comic type. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah, very good. Um, moving on then to some more Dimmy's questions here. She's, uh, the next one she asks is, do you have an opinion on targets being visited multiple times by multiple remote viewers? And does this make the journey for future remote viewers on that target more easy? No, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, we, we don't, you know, it's like there's no, there's no evidence at all that, multiple viewers visiting a site, even knowing they're there. Um, there one incident out of about 25,000, 30,000 remote viewings I can think of where uh, the target was the same, and that was at Stanford Research Institute. I was a randomly chosen target, and the, the target was the chapel on uh, in the 
the chapel that uh, Kennedy's body, JFK's body, was left in state sitting in uh, was overnight just before his burial in Arlington. And in this chapel, it's a very old chapel in Arlington. And while his body was in state within the chapel that night, there was no one in the building. The rooms were the room was sealed, and there were guards outside. And uh, it was a double-blind target, and I drew a fairly representative drawing of the inside of the chapel. But I put a I put a man sitting in the front row, far right, and he was wearing a black hat, which I thought was unusual because no, he was wearing a white hat, and uh, I thought it was unusual since. I said it was a chapel-like yeah. place, and I didn't get any bodies lying in state. I just drew the inside of the chapel. I think it probably had something to do with the targeting methodology, but um, when they went to put it in the file, they discovered that Ingo Swan had had it as a target as well, randomly chosen, and when he drew the inside of the chapel, he drew a guy sitting on the left side of the room wearing a black hat. And there's always been this hypothetical belief that I was there and saw him and he was there and saw me, but I don't think that's true. It, it might be that we picked up someone on either one of us targeting it, but even that can't be proven. So, but beyond that, there's no evidence at all that viewers share any commonality with a target. Excellent. Um, she's got a couple more questions here. I'll, I'll skip some of them because we've got okay. some for other people Whatever. as well. But she has a, uh, a question here about uh, disclosure. And I think this is uh, UAP or UFO disclosure. Uh, and she asked here, what is your opinion regarding the fact that they are not coming to face us uh, in regards <laughs> to the disclosure? They don't want to know anything about us. <laughs> I, I think they know all they need to know. They, they know that we're savages. In comparison, you know, I mean, it, if you could, if you could hypo, hypothetically say that they jump star to star, they'd have to do it literally within a very, very short period of time, or it wouldn't be worth it. Um, they'd be eclipsed by their own advances in science. Otherwise, uh, in other words, one group would be in route, the other group would pass them by. Uh, you know, 10 years later, that kind of thing. And it would, they would have to literally jump star to star on a very, very short period. So, you know, we're talking about a possible species of being that's uh, millions of years ahead of us, possibly, or at least a few thousand years. So, no, they, they're not going to get anything from us other than watching us to see what primitive races do or don't do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, makes sense. So no, they don't want to have anything to do with us. <laughs> we, we're not smart enough to take care of our own planet. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the next question is from Lily efflorescence. And she says, Joe, you've said that your mental apparatus doesn't remain constant and you have to continually upgrade it and that you have to explore to find out how it's working. She says, please, could you talk more on how you go about exploring your mental apparatus and how it's working and what <laughs> type of adjustments you might make? 
That's an interesting observation on her part. I wouldn't put it that way. Um, the, the problem, the basic problem in remote viewing has more to do interpretation of what you're getting than anything else. There, there's a belief, and, and it's a belief that was started by Ingo, and he and I used to argue about it at dinner all the time, that, um, that you have to somehow get the information that your subconscious is presenting to your conscious mind before it's processed by your conscious mind. The difficulty with that is the subconscious has no language. So it borrows from the conscious mind. In other words, when you get anything on a target, what you're getting is whatever the subconscious can dig out of your conscious mind is similar or somewhat close to it. So you have to break that back in an analytic format that tells you why you're getting it. In other words, let's say you're targeted on a swimming pool and you're presented with uh, or not a swimming pool. Let's say you're targeted on a large circular pool and your subconscious gives you the image of a Olympic sized swimming pool because it's the only thing you have in your repertoire of memory that can tell you what it is. And, and it grabs the first thing that comes along. It's even similar. So you have to break that back in a way that tells you why you got that as a symbol. And in doing so, you have to determine whether or not it actually is a swimming pool or whether or not it's just got fluid in it. Why is it circular? Why is it similar to a swimming pool? That kind of thing. And what you may wind up with is it's a sewage processing plant or something. But you have to keep picking at it and tear apart the symbology of the presentation that your subconscious gave you. So it's kind of like learning a language that operates between your subconscious and conscious mind. Now, the problem with that is there's a lot of symbology involved. And like in the beginning of remote viewing, a lot of, I would say maybe 40 to 60% of, of new remote viewers, when they get a religious target, they draw an inverted V, you know, like this. And I think that has something to do with the, the hands praying or the steeple on a church or something, but it's a symbol and the symbol is uh, fine for that time in that effort. But as you become more pro proficient at interpreting what your subconscious is trying to do, that symbol will disappear and it will get replaced by something far more cognitive or something far more complex. And so it's not only a language that's temporary, but a language that's improving. And if you don't improve with it in your analysis of what it's saying to you, you get you get left behind basically. And you have to start all over again. So you have, you're constantly learning what your subconscious is doing. And your subconscious keeps growing and changing in its complexity. Uh, if for no other reason than to not be misinterpreted. Um, you, you have to understand remote viewing. It, it's not, it was never designed 
to give you perfect images of anything. It was designed to give you warnings for survival. It goes back 400,000 years, and it was to ensure your survival against things like cave bears that were 15 feet tall and weighed 3,000 pounds and had nails four and a half inches long. You didn't want to run into one of those turkeys or you wouldn't survive. So it, it was a way of the, for the subconscious to give you warnings or to protect you in some way. Well, we, we lost the need for that probably 30,000 years ago yeah. or 10,000 years ago, whenever it was that we became sufficient at hunting and gathering that we could actually have some spare time for doing other things. Yeah. And, and so, you know, our, our need for survival mechanisms has disappeared. We, we hire people to protect us now, like police and firemen and stuff like that. So we don't need it anymore. Um, that's why really good remote viewers are usually ex-policemen, firemen, soldiers, um, surgeons. They're, they're people that are faced with making life and death decisions in the instant without the ability to go and look something up in a book or talk to somebody for advice. Uh, it's an intuitive response. That kind of thing. Excellent. Thanks for that one. Uh, I've got a couple of questions now from uh, Tun Tunde, uh, who's, you know, I, he's done some work with you in the past and hired yeah. for some projects. Um, his first question was, uh, have you rem remote viewed the long-term future of cryptocurrencies? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't invest in them personally. Um, I, I think, I think some of them might be secure enough. But since they've gotten out of the out of the area that actually started the whole concept, um, I think it's more manipulative now. And so pe people who invest huge amounts are going to control the outcomes, yeah. you know, by selling or dropping them or, you know, changing what they have their investment in. Yeah. It, it, you know, the, the general public's always been subjected to what the, what the people with money are doing because they can manipulate the markets for almost anything just by buying and selling. Yeah. So they make killings all the time, but it's because of the huge amount of money they're moving. And any of us to try to follow along behind them, we're just a little bit too late to, to make the same killing they do. And, and for every bit of money that's made by someone in any market, I don't care what it is, to really make a lot of money, somebody has to lose a lot of money. And so the probability of being the one who makes a lot of money is very, very small. And that's the same with stock markets or anything else. Yeah. Uh, you have to be extremely lucky or make the right choices. Excellent. And this next question he has uh, is very apt for the time right now. Do you feel the current Russia-Ukraine conflict could trigger World War Three? 
Yeah, uh, I don't. It's possible. It could appear that way in minds, but only because the same old, you know, that it's the same. It's these are old fears. Okay, the, these fears have been been around for seventy five to one hundred years, and it's uh, socialism against any other form of government. Okay. Uh, and that came, that was birthed out of the Second World War and earlier by the uh, the First World War, which is actually had more to do with uh, royalty than and uh, a bad choice in creating new borders between some countries. Um, the Second World War created this this fear based thing about communism because of the you know, the iron wall that went up between us and the communist countries at the end of the war. What we have to worry about more than anything else is whether or not dear Putin decides to use a tactical nuke or a biological or chemical weapon. If he does, I think that'll automatically bring uh, NATO, NATO into the fray uh, because we can't allow that to happen. And that, I don't think that'll trigger World War III, but it will trigger something almost close to it yeah. um, because we will go to war and have to shut that kind of stuff down in a hurry because uh, that is so far beyond the necessary that uh, it's only used to eradicate. And uh, we, we just have to shut that down. Yeah. Uh, his next question is a complete change of direction here. He, uh, and he says, uh, two years ago at an APP online conference, uh, you mentioned that you felt the moon may be artificial. He wondered if you could elaborate on why you felt that. The moon may be artificial. Yes. What I think what I said at the time was apparently uh, it has no mass. And that in order for it to maintain orbit, it needs a certain amount of mass. So in, in reality, being stationary in orbit to a point that as it circles the Earth, it's always got the same face to us, would indicate that that's an impossibility with the mass that it carries. So how's it doing that? would be my question. Yeah. And uh, that tends to lead one to believe it's more artificial than not. I think that's what I said. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't saying that it was artificial. I was saying that what it's doing yeah. lends one to believe it's artificial. And uh, so, so there's a lot of questions about the moon that we don't understand. Yes, absolutely, uh, yeah. And that, this leads on to his next question, which is, um, are the recent Tic Tac UAPs that are widely reported uh, extraterrestrial in origin, or do you think they're terrestrial devices? I think that, well, I don't think they're either one. I think they're interdimensional. And, and the reason I say that is because um, uh, according to the reports, uh, one of them dropped from 
around 90,000 feet altitude to subwater in altitude instantaneously. I mean, just dropped at about 40,000 miles per hour, just went from 90,000 feet to the ocean and, and broke the surface of the ocean and went under the water and then did a 90 degree turn and took off at about 4,000 miles per hour. So in order to do that, that's operating outside of reality in terms of physics. So we may be able to see that happen. Our sensors may be seeing it happen, but it's beyond reality in terms of uh, physics in our reality. So uh, the only way that could happen would be if it was interdimensional in some way or straddling some dimensions. Um, so and it, it doesn't matter what depth it goes to in terms of water either. Yeah. Uh, so it's almost like we're seeing something that's predominantly located in another dimension, but is kind of using our dimension to make a sharp, bright turn, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's like stepping into another dimension and planting your foot to make a left turn. Yeah. It, you know, using our dimension for some reason or another for moving. And, and I just find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So I, I think it's interdimensional. Excellent. And I'm guessing uh, you have, you, or if you could say, uh, have you been targeted uh, against that, that UAP experience in any way? Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I was uh, part of a an unidentified flying object recovery team for 15 years and um, spent a lot of time at a multitude of different crash sites. And uh, it, it just the, the data that we, we were able to collect, uh, let's say out of 12 different sites, 11 of them were our stuff, okay? It was clear when you actually got there and looked at the evidence on the ground and looked at the the uh, the damaged aircraft that something might have collided with and that sort of thing. It it we were able to find evidence that it was our our government or our planes or our advanced weaponry that that sort of thing that the government just didn't want people knowing about. There was one case, however, that uh, uh, seemed to be real. And that's the one case that also seemed to have had a live entity on board. Okay. And, uh, but everything, everything, we found the, the logbook at the, uh, I think it was the Los Angeles Times. We found the logbook where parts or pieces were logged in and locked in a safe there. We found notes uh, from the person who went out to photograph it. And since it was the event occurred directly over a what's called a dry, a dry mine, 
Uh, it's where they shovel dirt into buckets out in the desert and then take it home and wash it out. It, it was a dry mine. And so, so we figured it had to be registered and it was, and we were able to, after about 10 days of searching, find the actual dry mine and uh, see the evidence there. And you could see, you could still see where the heavy equipment had come in and moved the object, whatever the object was in, in the full impact of how the object wedged into the side of a, a hill um, gave the impression that it was oblique and flat, more flat than not. And we even found the aircraft that it collided with where it augered into the desert five miles away and burned. So, but that's the only one okay. yeah. that, uh, that really left any evidence that it might've been real, but it was, it was gone within 24 hours. I mean, they came in with heavy equipment, loaded it on, flat pits and spirited it off somewhere <laughs> it's on the desert in that big warehouse you know with all the boxes and the ark of the covenant and all that uh, and the group you worked for for this was it a private group or was it a... yes it was um okay yeah what what was interesting is some of the reasons why they recovered some of these aircraft that one of them was one of them was a bomber uh, you know, a prop prop bomber from the Second World War. It was just prior to the war starting, and it was testing a, um, a high altitude uh, bombing device. Uh, I can't I can't right now remember the name of it, but uh, there were only two in existence at the time, and it permitted high altitude bombing at night. And when the bomber crashed, they didn't want anybody seeing it or yeah. absconding with it. So they went in to make sure they got all the parts and pieces of it and uh, cart carted the whole thing off on flatbeds yeah. and everybody had to sign non-disclosure things. And they put small bodies into body bags. Well, those small bodies were big bodies that had burned. And when you burn a human body, it takes all the fluids out of the body and, and uh, the crispy critter that's left looks very, very small in comparison. Yeah. yeah. Um, that kind of thing. But we found evidence that within, I don't know, 15 miles of that, that site where it crashed, there was a, an entire aircraft carrier paved on the ground. And this is in uh, Missouri, not Missouri. Um, I want to say Kansas. Like, I'm not absolutely sure I'm remembering right, but uh, there was an aircraft carrier that had actually paved on the ground. They were teaching naval pilots how to land and take off right. on a carrier. And it, it, it's still there. It's circled by an old fence, and it's got signs up that says Le lethal force will be used if you try to enter. Of course, we went right in and saw the, <laughs> saw the, the paving on the ground. But we found actually classified pictures of the site that are now declassified from the Second World War. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. But but there was one real event. Excellent. And I'm guessing you were probably tasked to look at the more commonly known ones, like uh, Roswell in Rendlesham Forest. Yeah. I, I don't. No, Rendlesham 
is an actual event. And that, that may have something to do with us visiting ourselves because I'm, I'm convinced that it's a time, it's a violation of time. Right. Yeah. The, the vehicle there was primitive. I think it appeared outside of time, its own time, and then uh, disappeared back into time. Um, but whenever you hear Roswell, I would advise you to not look at Roswell, but to look at the, the dual crash that occurred elsewhere. Um, I can't remember the name of the area now, but yeah. was it, it was a Az dual Aztec cr- maybe? Or? Where? Was it the Aztec crash? Uh, that doesn't sound familiar. No, it was, it was another crash in New Mexico. That occurred some weeks later. Okay. And and it, that's the one I don't want you to look at. Right. That's why Roswell keeps popping up. Okay. So you think it's, there's a part yeah. truth to it, but it's mainly a cover story for the other one. I think it's a cover story for another crash site. Right. But that would make sense. That's been my experience from the remote viewing side of it anyway. Excellent. And Tunday's last question was, uh, uh, do you have any thoughts on the reality of the historical person known as Jesus of Nazareth? And have you ever uh, done that as a, as a target? And was he a real person or is this several oh, men, messianic individuals? No. Uh, well, he certainly is one of a group of messianic individuals, but yeah, he, Jesus was real. Um, I don't think he was, I think he was crucified but I don't think he died on the cross. I think he survived the crucifixion. Um, I think he was also married and uh, probably had children uh, that the uh, apostles were, you'd have to say messianic in their approach to things. So the, the church as I understand, it was spread that way. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't just one man that uh, that was teaching that that uh, teaching the philosophic realities that they were teaching back then. But I think they all did. Um, I think these are messages that are repeated over and over and over in to humanity and and I think they do come in a in a sense common common belief yeah. about what God might be that kind of thing I I used to not have any trouble with what God might be until I had three or four near death experiences I keep I keep having near death experiences <laughs> And I, and I think it's to teach me a lesson. Um, I, I just got through my last one here. Um, my whole body went sepsis and I spent four weeks in a hospital and, and came out with a pick line and 24 minutes of penicillin pumped through my heart. And I'm on a moxicillin now for the next year. Um, it, it, that's when I went to the emergency room, they said, oh, if you'd waited another seven hours, you wouldn't be here. Wow. So, it, you know, 
these are starting to wear on me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you've had uh, se- you've had several now, haven't you? Like that. Yeah, quite a few. And um, the lesson there is that you don't you don't die, you don't cease to exist in reality. Um, but there are lots of realities. And um, in my philosophy, I've been working on a philosophic book now for four years, and I can't seem to finish it because every time I think I know what the hell I'm doing, it changes. Uh, <laughs> I uh, also am running into another problem. I started to add a section on uh morality and uh ethics because somebody made a comment out of the cia they said we we decide what to do morally and ethically with what you give us but you give us everything (laughs) and i said no i got bad news for you guys uh, but my morality and ethics i'm only responsible for i can't delegate it and we got in a huge argument over that. <laughs> but every time I think I'm going to finish that section, it just more things happen that need to be addressed. So I'm breaking it off. There'll be two books. <laughs> it's, it's just that I, I can't seem to finish either one. And I don't know if that's intentional or unintentional. Maybe it's me. I don't know. Well, we look forward to seeing those uh when they do eventually come out, they'd be fantastic. Mm-hmm. The next question we have here is from Christopher Ramirez. Um, I think it's a two-part question, really, because he says, uh, I want to know about still Im- images versus immersive experience. He says that you stated in the past that you can get 60 tastes of a target. And then he goes on to say, but working with a monitor, does it have more ease moving around a site than seeing a still image and describing it? And can you move around more easily without a monitor? So I think that's two, two questions. Wow, that's like four or five questions. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, I, I call making contact with a target tasting it because it's more like tasting it than it is anything else. Um, I talk in images, but that's only because I'm dealing with interpreting what my subconscious is giving me. Um, Images aren't completely correct ever, in my opinion. Um, But you also, we forget that we have a lot of other tools. You know, they're called smell, taste, uh, inference, um, perception. There's a lot of ways of looking at it. Um, So when I taste the target, I, I never go in with the idea that now I'm going to get the smell from it or now I'm going to get the, the actual taste from it. No, I go in with the idea that I'm going to be surprised by what I get. And every time I go in and retaste the target, it's always something different. It's never the same thing. So the, the, the real problem there from a remote viewing standpoint is having to have some agreement or a sense that you feel it needs to be agreeable, but it doesn't. And, and again, it's a misconception about what remote viewing does. 
a lot of people think if you work at a target long enough, you can actually draw it. That's not true. It's something even more profound than that. It's a sense of delivering what just about anyone would feel when they see the target. And the example I would give is tracking an agent once I drew a picture, drew a picture of a lab in the middle of the desert and it had uh, parking lots, rows of trees down the sides of roads and a T-shaped building that was seven stories tall and just had all kinds of interesting things to it. But I put it all in a picture and everybody that sees the picture says, Oh, that's the West gate of Lawrence Livermore laboratories where they make the bombs. In fact, that was the target, but there is nothing in my drawing. That's correct. It's completely erroneous. The entire drawing. But what it does is it keys that memory off in just about anybody who's ever been there. They remember it as soon as they see my drawing. So it's a perception that you're trying to sell with remote viewing and not reality. It's what anybody would feel if they see the target. So the idea that someone can construct accurately exactly what it is is bogus. Mm -hmm. If someone is claiming a remote viewing and they're actually drawing something perfectly resembling the actual target, there's a leak somewhere that that is not double blind. I can tell you they know something about the target going in. And I don't consider that to be good remote viewing. Good remote viewing has to follow the only extent protocol that, that, that exists anywhere in the world. And that's the protocol that was written by SRI International many moons ago, 1975. I think it originated in 75. It was not actually written until like 78 or 79. That protocol is the only extent protocol for remote viewing. And it requires that anyone doing remote viewing is double blind. And anyone in the room with them is blind to the target. There's a lot of reasons for that. I demanded all my targets be blind because the reason why is because if I have a hint or somebody says it'll fit in a shoebox, that blinds me. It, it makes all kinds of crap come up in my head that I have to fight off then. And I don't like doing that. Like I said, I want to be surprised. I want something to happen that I've not had happen ever from a perceptive standpoint. And so that that's important. If you can learn to, if you can learn to break down your perceptions properly, because they are, are purely perceptions that you have no control over that come into your head. That, that's what being psychic or being a remote viewer is all about. And that, that's a hard discipline to, to, to conquer. It, it takes years. And 
I've been doing this for 48 years. I just retired, by the way. I don't do it anymore. I'm tired. I've been doing this for 48 years. I've done, I don't know how many remote viewings, and I've done hundreds of remote viewings live on national level television in seven countries. And I'm tired, you know, I'm, I'm tired of being challenged. And, um, but I don't want to let go of it. It's kind of like grown on me a little bit. And um, it does that, yes. it's just that there are a lot of things that I'm interested in. So I have my wife to target me on things that I'm interested in now. And I've given her enough things that there's no way I could guess which one I'm working on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's like the addition to the uh, Himiko problem. This, this is a mommy island, by the way. That's what it looks like. That's pure remote viewing. I don't have a clue what it looks like because it's not on any maps. <laughs> Um, well, we look forward to seeing uh, maybe a potential book in the future of uh, all these these targets that you you're getting your wife to set for you right now. That, that yeah. Uh, but this also leads on to a great question from Rich Kranowski here, um, and he says, "What are your views on RVing fictitious targets, either created works of fiction or erroneous beliefs of the tasker and others involved in the project?" Uh I don't like them. I don't do. Well, I kind of do in a sense that people have tried to fool me many, many times, different agencies. Uh, yeah, well, it's a trick. Um, I can prove it. I'm just not going to put a target in the envelope or um, I'll give them something else. And uh, what I what I've done in the past is hand them the envelope back and say, come back when you got a real target or come back when you put a target in the envelope. Uh, don't bug me if you don't have anything that you really are interested in. Or, or in one case, why don't you ask the guy you you're holding in the building four blocks down? Don't ask me. He knows. He's just not one to tell you. Um, so, so they asked me, well, how do we get him to tell us? And I said, just tell them that you'll uh, you give a, uh, a U.S. citizenship to his daughter and pay for the college education she wants. And, uh, oh, well, he's not married. He has no daughter. He wouldn't be doing the job he's doing if he had a daughter. It turns out they go down and talk to the guy, and the guy goes, how'd you find out about my daughter? Even my bosses don't know about my daughter. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's fictitious targets. Just piss me off. To be honest, yeah. I wouldn't do a fictitious target for anybody. I, the, the other kind of target that really bugs me a lot are treasure treasure targets. Um, I get approached many times by people who want me to hunt for treasures. In the, in the way they put it, they, they come up and they say, I, I know generally in the desert where something's hidden, it, it's, it's a strong box and it's got 40,000 gold coins in it. They're, they're all uh, dollar pieces. 
And uh, you tell me where it is, and I'll get it, and we'll split it 50-50. And I look at him, and I say, you know the mistake you just made? No. Why would I split it with you if I know where it is? <laughs> but if you agree to do a treasure, what happens is within 24 hours, you get a phone call. Do you figure it out yet? Do you know where it is yet? Can you tell me where it is yet? They'll drive you completely nuts. And I don't have time for that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. I've been there myself, actually. I get, I get many requests like that myself. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. Give me a break. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to a question from John Dixon. Uh, and his question is, um, has your thoughts or opinions of how remote viewing works changed uh, from all your time you've been you know, on active duty to where you are now? Um, and if so, can you explain why they might have changed? Yeah. I, a lot of people are going to disagree because everybody's bought into things like Akashic Records or the idea that cognition is shareable, that we all share some form of cognition. My perception is that... Like right now, we're in a sense sharing with each other. I'm telling you what my world's all about. And in our interaction, I'm learning something about Daz's world as an example, or somebody else's world by the kind of questions they ask. But I don't really know anybody else. I, I know what they tell me, but that, that implies I know all about them, but I don't. The thing, the thing that I believe is that as individuals, we exist in our own world and we create everything that happens to us. Everything we do is a full loop. Okay. I call it a full loop. In other words, I make a decision. I do A and A is a loop. It comes back around and creates a result. And when I get the result, I know what the result of doing A is all about. Now, I think everybody else is in their own world because when we turn this machine off, we kill the zoom. All you guys are going off somewhere on your own. You're going to be doing the things you want to do in your world. And I'm not going to know anything about them and I'm not going to care. I'm only going to care about what I'm doing in my world. The idea that that somehow makes us all experience the exact same world is fictitious it's not real we create reality in our interactions and as we do things as we make decisions and as we function we create a reality which is a false reality it's a belief structure that we swim in and we call it reality and it's not any more real than anything else um so everything that I do is a full loop. So given that's true, then if my intention, my attention or my expectation for outcome is B and I act in that regard, then that's what I get. I get B. If I am doing a remote viewing, what I am doing is chasing my own loop to an answer. 
And the answer will always be what my expectation is. My expectation is always to know what it is I'm chasing. So I'm living my own loops. And I'm sorry, but none of you guys are invited. These are all my loops, not your loops. So in my world, my remote viewing will always work. I I had my training officer, Skip Atwater, said to me once, he said, Joe, if, and and he said this 20 years after the project ended, he said, "If, if you only knew how hard and how long I think about exactly how to task you on something so we can get the right answer, you would be amazed. And I said, well, I got news for you. None of that matters because I learned a long time ago that most tasking is bad anyway. So I learned to task myself. He said, and I said, no matter what tasking is said to me, my tasking will always be, let me give them what's going to make them happy. And it always works. I am not confused by bad tasking, and that's the problem in remote viewing. A lot of tasking is bad because people that are pursuing the answer don't know anything about remote viewing. Remote viewers don't know anything about tasking. It's never taught to anybody. Um, in where I when I teach remote viewing. And I'm creating a mortal sin now because I'm going to tell you what I do when I teach remote viewing. And there's 50, at least 15 people out there that will have this on the Internet in 20 minutes and they'll be making money. I teach what the monitor does. I teach what the viewer does. I teach what the analyst or judge does. I teach the tasking. I teach everything about remote viewing. And the reason I do that is so people understand that there are no easy parts to it. It's very complicated. And any one person in the, in the effort that doesn't do the job right screws it up. It's, it's hard to teach it that way. But it's that's what I do. And in Every class that I've taught, at the end of the class, I ask people, just in all honesty, uh, what I want to know is if you feel that you've remote viewed well, raise your hand. Everybody puts their hand up. Because everybody in the group gets at least a second place match or a first place match on something that they were targeted on. Because it understand what they have to do to finish their loop, you know, or what the monitor has to do to help the viewer or what the judge is faced with in trying to understand the remote viewing. A lot of people do remote viewing and they just put words down. They don't say why they just do drawings, but they don't say what they're exactly drawing. Or they write words and in their drawings, and you can't read them. 
you can't even read the words. So if someone out in left field that knows nothing about remote viewing has to use their data, it's useless. If you get my understanding here, um, it's difficult. It's a, it's a very hard discipline to learn. It's not impossible, but it's hard. And many people when they're faced with the difficulty usually go back to bowling. Yeah. That's, you know, if it's kind of teaching remote viewing, I always equate it to bowling because it's kind of funny. If I always say to somebody, do you think I could teach you to bowl in one hour? And they all think, well, yeah, you could do that. I said, how long do you think it would take you to bowl three perfect games back to back? (laughs) Oh, no, more. That's more like golf. (laughs) (laughs) But what, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting to is what frustrates me is when somebody learns to bowl or play golf and they don't do well, it's funny. When they learn to do remote viewing and they don't do well, they get pissed off. Yeah. But they're not facing the problem of discipline, mental discipline. They actually are asking for the purple pill. Okay. And there is no purple pill. At least I haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> That's a great answer. Every other pill, maybe, but not purple. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, th- this leads on to a question that I have, really. Um, I've been rereading your book, uh, Memoirs of a Psychic Spy, and you detail in there quite, you know, you're talking about the history of Stargate quite a lot, what you did in Stargate. Mm-hmm. And something that really bugs me is, uh, when I was reading it, you, you were describing it, is that, when you know you were doing your thing and you were essentially propping the unit up whilst it was having the uh, the Ingo Swan method training, you know, yeah. we were tra- training Tom and Tom and mm-hmm. Rob, I think it was at the time, until Rob dropped out. Um, but you detail in quite a few chapters in the book, and I made notes on this that, and I don't understand why, but they intentionally almost like segregated you from the rest of the group and segregated you from knowing anything about what the guys were training with, and I. I just, I just, you know, I don't understand why, why they did that. I wondered. Actually, that- I, I was taught, I was taught at SRI the method. So it's not like I don't know it. Yes. I know all these different methods, but what happened actually happened in the unit. Um, they tried to design a remote viewing room that would take away any interference from remote viewing. So. They they, pray, they paid, painted this entire room gray. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember if they painted the pencils gray, but I think they did. But it, the the idea was no mental memories, no visual interference, that sort of thing, which is fine if you can walk around in a room like that. You can't. You fall down because there's no horizon. But I can't, I did a remote viewing there and I came out and they handed me a slip of paper. It was maybe two inches wide and 12 inches long. And they had uh, 20, I think 25 lines numbered one through 25. And when they handed me the paper, they said, the boss wants you to fill in all the things that interfered with your remote viewing. And it was birds chirping too loud outside the room voices heard through the walls. I mean, just 
this uh, this incredible list of stuff, and I and it infuriated me. I took the list and I went back over to the boss and I said, "This," I said, "You may not realize this. I know you're intending to help, but you gave me a, a way of listing all the reasons why I fail. That's inappropriate." The problem here is I'm a soldier in the U.S. Army, and if you're going to teach me to remote view and I can't deal with outside interference, how good am I going to be standing next to a 155 battery when it goes off? That's insane. No, I have to learn to remote view sitting at a desk with phones ringing, people yelling, doors slamming, people coming and going, people asking me questions. If I can't develop that kind of mental discipline, then this is going to be of absolutely no use to anybody. And so, no, I'm not doing it this way. I broke away from the group deliberately. I went my own way because they were making rules that are insane. Ingo Swan's training method is bogus. And the reason it's bogus, I'm going to tell you right now. He was looking at every target he taught. Every single one that was in front of him. And he would respond one way or the other if the person was right or wrong. And the problem with that is he's teaching you to get warmer, get warmer, getting cold, getting cold. Remember that old game you played as a kid? Getting warmer, getting warmer. So he was teaching everyone to read him well, but not how to remove you. No, you can't do, do it that way. It's bad teaching. And to validate that, we actually took it to Stanford, to not Stanford, to, yeah, to Stanford University and spoke to people who specialize in teaching hard subjects and asked them their opinions. And they said there were a lot of massive errors that he made. Now, I knew Ingo. I knew Ingo would spent hours developing things. He spent more time in a library than I did my entire life, I think. He didn't understand teaching methodologies, though. He, 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 knew, he knew what he intended to do, but he didn't know the proper approach to doing it. And so the Ingo-Swan method doesn't teach well. It, the other thing it does it is a real irritant, irritant to me. If you're learning stage two and you get a stage three response, Ooh, can't put that down. So what happens to the stage three response in the learning? It goes away. That's wrong. You, you don't, your subconscious does not play that game. Your subconscious may give you the answer right at the get-go. And in fact, almost in every remote viewing I've ever seen in my life by anybody, the first thing on the paper is dead, dead, dead accurate. Yep. Anything that follows is less and less accurate. So 
there's a whole different approach there that needs to be learned. Uh, you know, for, first item on the page, that's the thing that you got right. And that's what you need to, to be learning. Why did my subconscious give me that? That's right from the get-go. You you got a perfect response and you need to learn why it happened. That kind of thing. So, yeah, I went and did my own thing. And then when they started identifying the types of remote viewing, the methodologies, not protocols, the methodologies being used. What methodology does Joe use? Well, they came up with this idea, ERV. That's what Joe does, ERV. No, I don't do ERV. I'm a remote viewer. There is no special method. And here's the reason why. I'm, I'm looking at a lot of people here listening to me talk, and every single one of you are different. Remember I said you all live in your own world of reality. You are brought up differently. You're taught differently. You learn differently. Anything I tell you about remote viewing is how I learned. It's not going to be how you learn. You're the only ones that can devise your own personal discipline, can break down what your subconscious is giving you, decide what's right about it, decide what's wrong about it. If you can't learn that, then you are not disciplining your mind. I made a comment in Japan. I was on a show in Japan. Um, I, I, it turned out I had a really good result. And they asked me, how, how can you be in a, uh, in a studio with all this stuff going on in an audience of 400 people and 39 million viewers and you do so well at remote viewing? How can you do that? And I said, well, it's really easy. I just shut my mind off. And they said, Oh, that's what he does. Okay. We know a guy. This is what the guy said. He says, we know a guy. He teaches, uh, he teaches people how to meditate. He studies meditators. He's, his name is Professor Moriakai, and he teaches at Nihon University in Tokyo. So the next time you come here, we're going to take you and introduce you to Moriakai and see what he says about you shutting your mind off. Now, I didn't know at the time, but they had 122-channel bilateral EEG. It was one of two in the world, and they had that at Nihon University. And so I went over there on my next trip, and they put the 122-channel EEG on me and put me in a mu metal shielded room, which shields all frequencies, just about all frequencies. They're, they're really expensive rooms too. My God, I couldn't believe what they pay for them, but put me in the room. And then over a period of about four and a half minutes, I counted from one through three. And I said, when I hit three, I'm going to turn my mind off. And I did. And when I came out, the whole room was silent. They put the results up on a 90-inch screen and actually filmed it. Um, when I shut my mind off, every frequency, which was 
all the different frequencies are shown by different colors dancing around in your skull. And my skull went completely dark for about four seconds. And he told me, the guy told me, and he told the, the producer, he said, I've been studying meditators for 38 years. And that's the only time I've ever seen a mind actually shut down. But that's where I went to learn to do remote viewing. You got to, you got to stop all the crap going on in your head. You got to at least slow it down or stop your, your thinking about things that are not material to the viewing in order to do a nice clean viewing and be able to understand what your subconscious is doing. And that's, like I said, that's a hard discipline to learn. And it takes years. It probably took me 25 years to shut my mind down. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not joking about that. It took me three years to be worth a damn as a viewer. Yeah. But now that, the lucky part of this, I could say it's lucky. I don't believe it is, but I could say that the lucky part for me is that the army paid me to do this for a living. It's a lot easier when you're paid to do it for a living yeah. than when you have to do it part-time. Now I'll tell you a secret. I was brought in, in, let's see, I think it was, December, no, it's October of 78. I was brought into the project before I knew it was a project. And I was shown a lot of stuff that came out of the Eastern Bloc and a lot of stuff that came out of newspapers and junk. And I was asked to review it. And I sat there for four hours drinking coffee and reading all this stuff. And when I was through, they asked me if I thought, what was my thought about it? Did I think it was real or not real? And I, I looked at him and I said, I think that this is a serious threat. And they said, thank you. And I left. I had no intention ever of participating in that project because I knew what it was going to do to our careers. I knew that my career would be toast in that project. So I went back to my real project. You know, what my real project was, I was in charge of my MOS worldwide. I was advisor to the commander of INSCOM, the, in, the intelligence and security command. That's for the whole army. Yeah. And I was advisor to the AXI, the army chief of staff for intelligence as a warrant chief warrant officer. Why would I ever go into that project? And then they sent me the SRI and tested me. And I tested better than any remote viewer in history. Five near perfect results in one second place match. And I got back to my headquarters and I walked in my office and my desk was empty. And so I asked the general, where's my stuff? And he said, I sent it to Fort Meade. That's where you're going. I got volunteered for that project that I never wanted to be in. Right. 
honest to God, did not want to ever be in that project. Because what it did is it turned my career to toast. It actually did. But since I was in it, I intended to do the very best job I knew how to do. And that's what I did. And it was a lot of work. It wasn't fun. It was tough. And so I kind of resent things on the internet, making it out like you can learn it in a weekend or you can learn it in a couple weeks or even learn it in a year. You can't learn it well. Takes a long time and a lot of personal discipline to get through it. And you got to really want to do that. Excellent. And, and I'm just telling you the truth about it. I can't think okay. of, yeah, I can't think of better advice. And, and, yeah, and thanks for sharing that with us, Joe. And I'm not telling any of you that you can't do it. Because if you're human, it's part of your nature. You can't help it. You know, we're, we're magical beings. Human beings are magical beings. We have one foot in pragmatic reality, our own creation. We don't admit it. We won't admit it. Everything that happens to us is our own fault. And that, that means that the other foot is in the spiritual nature of what human is. We have a, a almost unbelievable contact with the spiritual nature of what it is to be human. We're probably one of, well, I'd, I used to say we're the only animal on the planet that can live in both worlds simultaneously, but I'm not so sure about that anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, I think dogs, dogs live there too. Yeah. yeah. Mine does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fur babies. Yeah. Anyway, um, with that f- uh, foot in both worlds kind of thing, do you think that may be one of the reasons why the uh, the non-humans in the UAPs might be interested in this? Well, it, let's put it this way. If you want to know about another world, certainly another star, there's no reason you can't remote view it. And I'm saying that factually. Uh, there is strong evidence that we're able to remote view any planet or in the solar system. And the distance there is humongous. So, yeah. and it's instantaneous. It's not, you know, yeah. we did a, uh, during the, at the beginning of the rescue attempt for the hostages in Tehran, we actually monitored Desert One minute to minute by using remote viewers. And when the tail boom of the helicopter was swung into the C-130 that was being refueled and it blew up, we knew it instantaneously. And our report beat anybody else's report to the White House. Took three minutes for a satellite job. Excellent. So, 
anything that we remote viewed on outer rim planets is instantaneous. It's not momentarily, it's instantaneous. But where does that information come from is the problem. Did it come from the outer rim planets? Maybe, maybe not. Where it might have come from is all the humanity on this planet that knew about what those outer rim planets were like after the outer rim flybys. You understand? In other words, we just went into the future for it. So is it possible to remote view another planet that's occupied by entities circling another star? Probably which may be the very reason why they're here monitoring us. Yeah. Excellent. Why? It makes us a threat. Yes. Yeah. May be the very reason why they won't talk to us. (laughs) We may be a very scary threat to them. Yes. That makes sense. This also leads on to a question from Rich, uh, actually, uh, a great question. He says, um, sometimes it feels like you leave a lot on the table, especially on anomalous targets, such as your famous Mars one. And ha- have you ever gone back to the Mars? No, I haven't. I haven't honestly gone back to Mars. Uh, the reason why is because when I did the remote viewing, my perception was that it was some new discovery. Because I, did, I didn't know at the time that we had assigned the same GPS coordinate systems to all of the outer rim planets and moons that we have. And so when they were reading the coordinates to me, um, Bob Monroe read them to me, actually. Um, I was in a black box sleeping when they showed up with the targets. I was had been working all day with, Bob Monroe learning to control my out of bodies. And so I was pretty tired and I was taking a nap. I was sleeping and uh, he was doing some paperwork or something. And the uh, military showed up and gave him this envelope, which he put in his pocket. And then they gave him the card with the GPS location. So when he read the first, the very first GPS location, it was location of a, uh, a pyramid. And I started to give a detailed description of a pyramid. And at the very beginning, I said, I, this must be a new discovery. And he said, why do you say that? And I said, because it's way bigger than the pyramid of Giza. And the rooms inside are much larger. And I don't think that technology allowed for it. And he said, well, just report on what you're getting. I said, okay. And then later in the process, I think it was around target number three or target number four. I said, my sense is that the sun is different for some reason. He said, what do you mean? And I said, it's, it's like got a funny, funny look to it seems to be smaller or larger. I can't remember now, but it looked different to me. And he said, I'm not interested in the sun. I'm interested in where you're standing. And 
So I had to go back to descriptions. So when I, I got towards the end, I started getting some perceptions of entities that were trying to communicate. I said, but it's not like they're there anymore. This is more like recordings of some kind that I might have triggered. And it was, it had to do with uh, the pyramids being designed as hibernation chambers to keep people alive. And then it, it started, I started losing it because I had done seven targets by then. So I came out of the room and he said, where is this? This is a new discovery, right? And they said, I don't know. Why don't you open the envelope? And Bob Monroe pulled the envelope out of his shirt pocket and opened it up. And it said 1 million years BC uh, on Mars. Or Mars 1 million BC. That's what it said. Uh, That surprised me. Because I I really didn't think Mars had a GPS system. (laughs) I don't know why, but it just didn't strike me that way. Now, I, I wanted to know if I was right or wrong, and they didn't know how to tell me. They just said, we're not sure. So the next time I was out on the West Coast, I went to, uh, I can't remember the name of the place now. It's, it's the, where they, have, they house the library for all of our off-world uh, anyway, I went there and uh, I went to the photographic division. They said, they'll never give you these pictures. <laughs> and instead, I, w- I went up to the table, the desk, and I said, I'm looking for some very specific pictures on Mars. And the guy said, oh, let me guess. It's the face. And I said, no, it's not the face. It's these. And I handed him the actual card with the GPS is written on it. And he took one look at the card. He said, oh, that's the old city on Mars. And he turned around and opened a drawer and pulled a packet out and handed it to me. And I said, how much do I owe you for this? And he said, nothing. Belongs to the American public anyway. (laughs) And I put those in my book. And it was a mind trap. But so they they weren't hiding them or anything. It's just that they they argue about what they are. Yeah. I, I have since, uh, since asked some relatively high up people in NASA, why we don't put a lander there. And they, here's the reasoning they gave me. It won't survive the landing. Um, evidently they picked the, the best places on the planet to put something down so that it will survive. Because if they continue to lose things, when they put them down on Mars, they, they won't get the budget they want. Uh, so they, they keep losing stuff yeah. impacts on, on Mars and doesn't operate very well. Yeah. Uh, the moon landings are also another good example um i think when they had to take manual control of the first moon lander and fly it sideways for 
I think 20 something seconds. They had uh, six and a half seconds of fuel left when they finally set it down in a, a less boulder strewn area. Uh, but evidently these, the moon is covered with uh, lots of big boulders and rocks that are very destructive to any landers. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Moving on in a slightly different direction here, because we haven't got much time left. I got a question from Sherry, and she says, when you meet fellow remote viewers, do you have a sense from them intuitively that that person has any RV talent? Or can you sense any RV talent in, in anyone? No, I can't tell you if they have. Well, first off, let me make this statement. I haven't met a human being yet that doesn't have some psychic ability. Okay. Um that's provable, demonstrable. Um, it's one of the things I hope in every class I teach when they leave, they know that they're psychic. They know that they're able to do remote viewing. It's the reason why everything I do in my classes is completely double blind. I don't have a clue. No one has a clue in my classes what the next envelope is going to be a target of. It's always a surprise. And every single person surprises me. So it's com it's a common capacity, a common capability in any human being. Okay. I have to make that statement. Yeah. The the real problem has to do with can I predict who has the specific discipline to carry through? Okay. To to make it as a remote viewer, I can't predict that either. It's, it's almost an impossibility. There are people that I thought would really have a great interest in it. It turns out they, they lose their interest very rapidly. And there's other people that just never let it go. I mean, they're, they just get their teeth on it and they just want to keep hammering away at it, which is good. But the problem is, they have nobody to teach them. Once they go through my class, they go away and they say they'll practice, but they don't practice. Yeah. You know, practicing is hard to do. Uh, it takes a lot of self-motivation, but they just don't seem to, to want to do it after a while. Yeah. Uh, and then you have people who don't have an innate talent, but they beat their head against it over and over and over, but they really need guidance of some kind, you know, something to help them when they become frustrated. Yep. Excellent answer on that one. And I got, uh, well, we'll go with just one more question from Kamokazi here, because we've been sure. going for two hours now for you. And he says here, what do you believe is the most significant innovation to remote viewing in the last few decades? Uh, and are there any aspects of RV you think are being neglected and should be studied more intensely? Oh, goodness. Um, well, you know, I, uh, probably the, the greatest innovation would be <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what I, that would be. I would say, I, you know, I made I would a, say Zoom, Zoom in the internet because there's more well, information. Zoom there. in the internet, certainly. But, yeah. you know, it, I'm thinking of myself personally and how something might affect me. 
I, I made a, I made a conscious decision. You see, I never wanted to teach it either. Yeah. Uh, teaching it is a dog. It's very hard to teach it because many people have an expectation that's totally out of left field. Yeah. And that's because they go on the internet and they watch the internet and some of the stuff on the internet that seems the easiest is the stuff that hooks them and it's not easy. And, and so they, they get frustrated easily. And that's when they usually show up for my class and I have to take, take them aside and explain to them what it really is all about. And, but they're able to get, get to the actual meat of it within a week or so. Um, my, I, I never really wanted to teach it. I didn't, I wanted to continue being a remote viewer, but I, I want, I'm the only one that has actually made a, a living doing remote viewing. I made a lot of money as a remote viewer working with corporations and people, individuals. But while I was doing that, I also came to realize that uh, I would have a greater effect on remote viewing and what it's all about by demonstrating it. Yes. And so I did my first demonstration on a thing called put to the test. That was a long time ago. I now have, um, you know what a banker box is? It's a box that's two by two by two by 12 or something. Um, I have five banker boxes filled with DVDs, VHSs, MP3s of demonstrations I've done all over the world, seven different international country countries. And, and I did the demonstrations on major television yeah. stations and I got, I have an 88% success rate doing that and it's always been double blind they've if they can't follow the protocol that stanford wrote the double blind protocol i refuse to participate yes and so everything i've ever demonstrated on television is completely blind and they design it in a way to demonstrate that and some of it's been phenomenal and it just um i basically i i convinced I would say almost fan <laughs> did that in about six years as well. Um, I looked for 28 missing people and found 14, half of them. Um, I, I designed two, two hour specials with children. Uh, we, we had a uh, fourth grade in the Northern Island and we had a fourth grade down in the Southern Island and we were in Tokyo and we had the kids. I taught the kids, kids how to remote view in about 15 minutes. Yeah. And then we had them fax in their drawings and 70 to 75% of the drawings they faxed in was how to draw a star every way you could draw a star, you know, five pointed star, six pointed, an asterisk looking star, Every way you can imagine of the star being a star being displayed. That said, they all did stars, and uh, it was a randomly chosen target in a sealed envelope. 
I had no idea what the target was. And I was, we had them fax in their drawings and we pinned all these stars up on the wall in the studio in front of a huge audience. And when we finally opened the, the, the envelope and pulled the actual photograph out, what it was was a starfish stuck to the inside of a, an aquarium, to the wall of an aquarium. And the kids went crazy. I mean, they throw, started throwing their pencils and stuff in the air. And, and they were all, I'm a remote viewer. I'm a remote viewer. <laughs> dancing around in their chairs. And yeah. it was just really a most amazing thing. Yeah, that sounds amazing. To witness it. They, I mean, 75% of these kids nailed the target. Yeah. Now, I know what they don't know. And that is young people who don't think deeply enough will usually nail the target the first time coming out of the box. And that's what they did. They absolutely nailed the target. Now I was approached after that show about a month later, uh, a very wealthy Japanese offered me a building of 28,000 square feet to start a college for remote viewers in Japan. And I had to refuse it because I didn't have the energy or the strength to do that. I just didn't have it. Yes. Um, facing two more surgeries on my spine and I just couldn't do it. So I had to say no, but that's the kind of faith that the Japanese have now in remote viewing. But that's Japan, you know. I've, I've demonstrated it in so many different countries now. And so many people have, have come to the, to the realization that remote viewing is real. And a lot of people have a great deal of interest in it. But there really is. It's very difficult. What do you do with someone who says, what mistakes am I making? You know, I can sit with someone usually... And if they demonstrate a remote viewing to me on a randomly chosen target, I can usually spot one or two things that can help yeah. that their mistakes they're making. Mm -hmm. I can yeah. tell by what they do with their eyes. It's, it's uh, kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, they're going to the wrong place in their head or they're not emptying their mind first or they're not taking the first thing that pops into their mind. You know, and if you catch somebody, you can say, yeah, what was that that just crossed your mind? You didn't put it down. Why didn't you put it down? Oh, well, because it looks like a big boat. It's not a boat, but it looks like a big boat. And I said, okay, sketch it. And they sketch it. And it's the, the gondola on the Ferris wheel. Right. Yeah. It's the target, you know, something like that. Yeah. And they realized then that they've, they've been missing the target forever because it's the first thing that pops in their head. Yes. Um, people don't, if, if it doesn't make sense, people won't, won't put it down. And I'm telling you, the subconscious doesn't care what, whether you make sense out of it or not. It's going to give you the answer. Um, the other thing that's a, a, a mistake a lot of people make this mistake is they want to keep, yeah, okay. So they get some elements of the target 
but they want to keep going till they can draw the target. Okay. Now I've been doing remote viewing for 48 years. I've only drawn the target maybe six times. That's not what remote viewing was designed for. Yeah. It's designed to give you bits and pieces of the target so that if you have to make a decision, if the FBI has to make a decision on which door to kick in of which building, they want the bits and pieces that tell them for sure which door and which building it's got to be. Because if they kick the wrong door in, the hostage is dead. You understand? Yeah. They'll take the bits and pieces in a heartbeat if they're right all the time. Yeah. Don't want a full-scale drawing because they know that'll probably be wrong. I have so, seen some really good uh, drawings that you have done of targets there. That, that Yes. But again, I would say to you, they're not exact. They're not exact drawings. Yeah. They, you look at my drawing and then you look at the actual target and most of what I drew is not correct. There's been, I mean, there's been a couple exceptions, yeah, yeah. but very few. Um, uh, a near perfect drawing in a science type test will bring you a 99 percentile. I've only gotten two of those in my history. All the rest have been in the 60 percentile or less. Yeah. And 60 percent in a science type target is extremely high for a high score because yeah. the norm is down around 14. Hmm. And that's because everything counts. Yeah. Everything that's known about the target, everything that's not known about the target, everything that is put down about the target that's wrong. Everything that was not put down about the target that is, I mean, they, they take everything and it's an algorithm. Yeah. It's called a figure of merit and it'll bust you wide open. If you don't, if you're not prepared for it psychologically, <laughs> uh, it's really tough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, and again, I've got 38 years of working in labs too. Yeah. So, Well, Joe, I, know I, want it can to, be done. I want to thank you for this, Joe, for taking the, these two hours with us. Um, I think we should leave it there now. Uh, and maybe, you know, sometime in the future, we can ask the last few questions we got. But, you know, on behalf oh, yeah, of you got, I mean, you got more questions I didn't yeah. answer. So, yeah, yeah, we'll we do got, it again. Yeah, we can absolutely do it again if you, if, if that's okay with you at some time in the future. Yeah, don't lose the questions. Absolutely. And I've got more coming in, in, in the chat window as well. So I'll, I'll keep a copy of those as well for, for a future okay. show. But on behalf sure. of the 75 people here, I want to say thank you for everything you've done and all your wisdom that you've, uh, you, you've given us tonight. You know, it gives us a lot to think about and help us on our own personal journeys with this. You're welcome. Anytime, Daz. Thank you very much, Joe, for taking the yeah. time with us. And don't, don't give up, guys. It, it's hard. It, and you'll have some successes. Yeah. Capitalize on those. But Remember, you don't learn from the successes. You learn from the failures. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. If you have a failure, you know everything you did wrong, right? Yeah. 
if you have a success, you don't care. You're happy. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't learn anything from that. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for that, and thank you for Bye, all guys. your wisdom and help. Thank and, you, Ben. And everything you've done over the years for us with remote viewing, it's, it's been an honor reading your books and seeing your work. Well, take care, guys. Yeah, take care. Have, Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you, Joe. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Yeah. Good Bye, -bye. Bye. Bye. Thank, thank you so much. Good to see you guys. Thank you for your honesty. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out RemoteViewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.